most kids end up preferring to access live content through Wi-Fi. We think that that's what will significantly change when 5G comes along. Now, 5G, we think, will allow them to have that same kind of interaction from the convenience of their homes. Imagine a student being able to access the best teachers, but at the same time, feeling like they're right there next to them. This is Techcetera, a podcast by Ericsson about the intersection of technology, culture, etc. I'm your host, Sarah Goss, and I'm Head of Innovation at Ericsson. Across the region, a large percentage of people live in rural communities where access to a high-quality education is traditionally not as easy as it is in major cities, with the only option, the local village. However, the pandemic has rapidly advanced the spread of remote education over the past few years, with APAC accounting for almost 32% of global growth in the e-learning market. In this episode, our guests discuss how smart devices, widespread connectivity, and a fundamental change in the way we educate the next generation will enable us to deliver world-class education anywhere, ensuring better learning outcomes and a brighter future for APAC students. Today, you'll hear from Dr. Rukmini Banerjee, CEO of Pratham. Having been with the organisation almost since its founding, Rukmini leads a dedicated team of educators across India to develop high-quality, low-cost solutions to address gaps in the education system. You'll also hear from Abe Sabu, co-founder of CoLearn, an app-based tutoring service with the goal of improving education standards in Indonesia and moving the country's education ranking from the bottom 10% of OECD countries to the top 50% within the next five years. No small challenge. Let's dive in. Rukmini, tell me more about the founding and mission of Pratham. Pratham was founded almost 25, 26 years ago in Mumbai. Our two founders were university professors, both very active in adult literacy in the late 80s, early 90s. And then Bombay had riots. And I think that left a big mark on the city. And as they came out of that, the background of the adult literacy and thinking about children and the fact that Something, you know, really terrible had happened and you wanted to build communities back together again. What is it that a whole city can aspire towards that actually brings people together as you build? And so the mission came out of this kind of a thinking, every child in school and learning well. And so we've done a whole bunch of things, starting from Mumbai, on what will a city or a community or a whole region need to kind of achieve that goal. But learning and learning well, I think there's a long journey ahead. What do you see as the societal impact of Pratham on the communities in which you operate? The impact, of course, apart from thinking about how that goal can be achieved in wherever you are, whether it's in your own slum, in your own community, in your own district. The other is who does that? And in much of what we do, it is local people who get together and organize in order to solve whatever gap you see in terms of achieving this goal. So it is a goal that you aspire towards, but I think it's also a process in which locally you think of what you can do. And some of it also is coming, I think, from an underlying assumption that we are all citizens of somewhere. And as citizens, 
although I always worry that the word citizen seems to refer to urban areas, but we are citizens. And there is a school system where we are. And so in the same way as we pay tax to get a public school system running, I think we all need to put in some effort to ensure that the system runs better. And so there are these notions of citizenship, of local participation, of young people coming together to solve problems that are all part of sort of our DNA. That idea of bringing young people together was somewhat challenged in recent years, but I wonder, Abay, CoLearn for you was originally conceived as a chain of physical tutoring centres, but has now pivoted pretty much 100% to app-based learning. What was the reason for this? Our reason from the beginning was the problem that we saw in Indonesia is Indonesia in the bottom 10% of PISA rankings. So students here, when it comes to math, science and reading, they're significantly underachieving their peers in the world. The idea that we had is, hey, look, we don't think we can fix the formal education system. We can do this by working outside, do after-school tutorings. And it was 2018 back then, and we felt like you know, the most effective way was to start by building an offline chain of tutoring centers, teaching kids essentials for the future. Those centers did really well financially. But one thing that we started realizing is you're just catering to a very small piece of the population and to scale up the impact. So we, we started working with other offline tutoring centers, partnering with them because there was about 40,000 tutoring centers in the country. So we started working with about 100 of them. And as we were doing this, then COVID hit. So then we had to make a decision. There was sort of a fork in the road for us. Everything during COVID was going online, right? So it was, the question for us was, is this going to be a temporary change or a permanent one? And we took the view that regardless of how long COVID would have lasted, eventually the world would go back to hybrid. So that's why we went online. But fundamentally, the reason behind that was also you know, our belief that if you want to improve education in Indonesia, it has to be done through access to great teachers. So a student anywhere in Indonesia should be able to access a great teacher. And the great teachers are not only in Jakarta. They're spread throughout the country. Teachers play the single most important role in learning outcomes. That's the reason why we said, hey, you know, now it makes sense for us to pivot from going offline to being a completely online player, purely because we think that that's the best way to solve for this problem of access to the best teachers. One of the acronyms you spoke about there was PISA, which I understand is the OECD Program for International Student Assessment. And I think what you're touching on as well in a market like Indonesia is that often it's socioeconomic status that influences learning outcomes more than other things. I wonder if you can elaborate a bit more, Abe, on the challenges and the unique struggles in educating Indonesia's large and economically and cultural diverse population online? When it comes to online, two things are absolutely essential. You need a device and you need connectivity. And in Indonesia, fortunately, smartphone penetration is actually pretty decent. Above 70% of the population has access to a smartphone. And you know, when it comes to internet connectivity, about 50% of the population has access to some form of internet I think the issue is more when it comes to both of these things. Number one, when it comes to devices, it's that a lot of people use secondhand devices. And when it comes to connectivity, what connectivity doesn't take into account is the stability of the connection. 
just because someone has access to internet or has access to 4G doesn't mean that they have it constantly. So going online for a lot of kids, it doesn't make sense because in the middle of your, your teaching, if the teacher can't connect with them, then they don't get as much value out of education as they would if they had just gone offline. Besides connectivity and devices, the other issue that we see with a lot of students is they don't have access to just focused and dedicated space to learn. So a lot of students, especially with online tutoring, what we're seeing is they share a house with siblings. Sometimes there's two or three siblings in one room. Sometimes these kids are studying in the living room. And so they just don't get that focus, quiet space that they need, which is so essential to online learning. Rukmini, what about the main challenges in India and educating elementary students there? What are some factors that can create challenges, whether they are socioeconomic or other reasons, such as access or cost or distance, these types of things? So if I look at the primary schooling in India and you look at sort of where the learning outcomes are and what you find that in third grade, less than 30% kids are at, let's say, grade level, which means that by third grade, by the time you're eight, 70% kids are getting left behind whatever it is that they're expected to do. Now, in my mind, there's nothing wrong with the kids, and I don't think there's much wrong with our teachers either. What is wrong with is what are the grade level expectations that you want a country of 250 million children to achieve? Think about a school system as organized in rows, which each row being an age and a grade. That's typically how school systems are organized. But in that row, the teacher actually has big variations. There are kids like the one that I said, 30% of my third grade is at grade level. There are big chunks which are way behind. Now, think of this now as flipping this from rows. And if you think about columns as kids who can read letters, who can read words, who can read paragraphs, and organize the same teaching by columns. You see a big jump in a very short period of time because I'm starting where you are and helping you to get to where you need to be. And that approach is now being called teaching at the right level. So according to us, the biggest challenge is how do you get to build from basics? Changing the school system uh, is one thing, but changing the curriculum is almost a constitutional activity in India. But in the meanwhile, we cannot have so many children getting left behind simply because we haven't organized our entire teaching and learning in the way that it suits our children. If you sit in class and you're in that 70%, every day your confidence in yourself decreases. Your feeling that I am worth it decreases. And you know, not knowing how to read is one thing, not knowing how to do simple math. But not feeling good about yourself is a huge disadvantage to the human potential. You paint a very clear picture when you describe moving from viewing things in a horizontal fashion to columns, and that makes a lot of sense. I wonder, Abay, in a similar vein, for CoLearn, one of your goals is to shift Indonesia's OECD ranking from the bottom 10% when it comes to education to the top 50% in the next five years. Why have you set this goal? Dr. Rukmini talked about confidence in children because if you have confidence, you want to learn more. Imagine, you know, the world and 270 million people being in the bottom 
the country can just achieve so much more if these students are at least in the middle 50% or higher. Indonesia is the single largest economy in Southeast Asia. So when people think of Southeast Asia, Indonesia is 60% of that. For a lot of these kids, again, they're currently students. During COVID, they were able to access school from home. But for their parents, they got a taste of what it's like to work from home. But meeting your colleagues or meeting your friends from all over the country or different parts of your city also opens up competition. And now for a lot of these Indonesian students, their competition, they've come to realize, at least their parents have come to realize that, hey, you know, at work, I'm going to have to be able to collaborate and compete with people from all over the world. And these kids will have to be able to do the same. So again, I think for those reasons, for us, ensuring that Indonesian students have that confidence when it comes to math, when it comes to science, when it comes to reading, is just going to be so essential for them if they are to have employability in the global context. I want to pick up actually, Rukmini, where you mentioned grade level expectations as being problematic. And to bring in Abe's point regarding education being the bedrock of where opportunities for future employability come from. So Rukmini, how does the fixation with grades and assessment that you mentioned impact employability from your perspective? So if you look at the labor market in India, the organized sector is where you will take some kind of an exam or an interview or your marks or your CV will be looked at for uh, placing you in employment. It's actually really quite small and has not grown that much. Our entire education system is geared for entry into that sector, as opposed to thinking about how do you build the human potential of everyone. So employability and employment are going to be increasing the things of the past. Now, if you look at a population of, say, 14 to 18-year-olds, we found that 85% of that age group was enrolled in some kind of an educational institution. 45% already was working and was working with families on farms or firms or whatever the family was doing. So you're in school, but you're not sure why you're in school because you're not really learning anything useful. You're working because it's needed, but you don't want to do it. Third piece is aspirations of everyone, not just the kids. So aspirations, because your parents probably had a few years, they're farmers or they work in a rural setting, believe that your eight years of education is going to translate into a totally different life for you and hence for the whole family. That's not going to happen. So this is a lethal mix that you have high aspirations, low awareness, low ability and stuck in activities that you really don't want to do with the imagination of a world that you've been preparing for that doesn't exist. So I, I feel like the world needs a big, big rethinking of what happens beyond basic education. And I think the construct around that individual excellence and achievement isn't unique to India, but I don't want to lose your comments, which are, I think, a bit unique to parts of the world like India and Indonesia, which is about the competing demands that students have that take away from the focus on their learning and their education through school. And Abay, you mentioned, for example, not even having a dedicated space in many instances. But I want to move to the role of connectivity 
and how vital it can be. Ericsson has statistics that says over 40% of the world's population still don't have access to the internet. And I think for young people in particular, that connectivity can lead to powerful outcomes across education, training, employment, as we've covered, but also entrepreneurial opportunities. So Abay, can we come back to this idea of connectivity and maybe the low base that Indonesia might be coming off, for example, with more advanced technologies such as 5G, but being on the cusp in the next five years to have this increase to almost sort of 40% 5G coverage in your country. So how do you see emerging technologies as an enabler in Indonesia's future? You know, if you think about how technology sort of evolved, especially with connectivity and what that's enabled. So kids previously only had access to offline learning. And when 2G came about, it became possible for people and there was businesses that emerged that could sell recorded content. But it wasn't always easy, right? Because, you know, with 2G, even downloading data was not always the best experience. So 2G made recorded content possible, but it did not make it into, you know, your day-to-day use case. But then when 3G came along, it made it possible for people to start downloading videos and not just images. And it made it just much more viable, just given the amount of time that it took to download a video or the cost of downloading a video. And so that made recorded content and education via recorded means possible. In countries like Indonesia or some of the kids that Dr. Rukmini is speaking about, with them, the basic issue is, you know, your motivation, your confidence, right? I mean, one or 2% of kids who have that motivation level to be able to sit in front of their computer and to watch recorded lecture. For most kids, that just requires so much intrinsic motivation that it's hard for them to get over. 4G made it possible for live education to happen. And you see that with kids, but you know, even the students that access our classes, a lot of them access them via 4G. But again, there's issues with connectivity, stability, depending on which part of the country you're in, whether you're traveling or not. And so again, most kids end up preferring to access live content through Wi-Fi. We think that that's what will significantly change when 5G comes along similar to how recorded content was possible, but was not day-to-day use case. We think for live learning, this is sort of what's needed, going from 4G to 5G for this to become something much more commonly used. And also in the key reason why a lot of students that we find still prefer offline learning because they get this interaction with their friends, with their teachers, not necessarily always access to the best teachers, but the fact that they can interact with them in a way which makes them much more engaged Now, 5G, we think, will allow them to have that same kind of interaction from the convenience of their homes. Imagine a student being able to access the best teachers throughout the country, but at the same time, feeling like they're right there next to them. We think that 5G, and especially technologies such as the metaverse, would make it much more easier for these students to feel like, I can still have that social, communal aspect that I want with my friends. And that whole experience is just much more easily replicated if you have access to technologies such as metaverse, which are enabled by 5G. Rukmini, you were nodding there, I can see. What's been the experience in your work at Pratham, especially with regards to the role of technology, but also how the capability of technology improves over time? So a couple of years ago, 
we had a whole bunch of tablets. We put tablets in about a thousand villages, varying levels of connectivity. And this was, you know, 2017, 18. So all of what you see today was a little bit yet to happen. But we had the tablets offline because we didn't have a way of filtering out what the children would see and so on. So it just seemed safer to do that. And the idea was that I'm giving you whatever I think is high quality content in videos or games or whatever it is. And that is what you're going to choose and look at. But something very different happened. We underestimated children's capability to explore. And we had in these villages almost like a saturation. Every kid aged 10 to 14 was part of a group and groups shared the device. So we saw that they were actually using the camera on the device for all kinds of things. So we thought we are giving them high quality content and they're going to look at it. What ended up was they were sending us their content and we had to look at it. And because it was outside of the school's timetable and curriculum and expectations, we ran, for example, one summer, a whole project on mangoes. And we gave them a little bit of an exposure to script writing. And we had so many, many, many little video clips that were made that you had to bring together people in each village as a jury for the screening of these films and for the selection of which one should be going ahead. Now, all of this was enabled by the social structure, the idea of what to do and the device and the connectivity. And so my own feeling from looking at least at the ed tech sector in India is that there are a lot of players in a crowded space trying to do help kids access that what I think is a very rigid and curriculum only meant for the elite. And that's where the parents are willing to pay. So that's where the market and the high tech is going. But there's a huge space for exploring what to learn, how to learn, where to go next, outside of that space where there is very little exploration. And so I would say one was this experience of what can you do? The kids did all kinds of projects, water problems. They did music surveys of their village. It was almost like you were in a position where you could do a wiki village. And from, say, 10,000 villages, kids will send you today's hot recipe from mom's kitchen. I mean, I think we have to unpack this what is learning. It's not only getting high marks in my physics exam. Because it also brought out huge potential of many other people who could help. Grandma is singing and she's saying to the kids, record it again. I didn't do a good job. Come on. You know, you know all kinds of things like this, right? You make a really important point because the core of communications technology is about connecting people. And through just that, opportunities arise. And when families are able to get access to a device that's connected to the internet and basics in terms of information or involvement with peers and classmates and so on, I wonder, Abay, can you relate to some of the community or network effect that Rukmini spoke about happens with her program with Pratham in India. Are there similar things that you can observe in Indonesia where that's happening in communities? With connectivity, I think a lot of livelihoods have have already changed. Uh, You know, the emergence of e-commerce and Indonesia has been one of the countries which has been just a very fast adopter of technology. Indonesia is one of the top consumers of social media, I think one of the top four in the world. But moms and families here 
have not just used it to be able to connect with their friends, but also to be able to enhance their livelihoods. You see WhatsApp as one of the common tools to sell. Same thing with a lot of the online shops that are being set up by families. So connectivity in Indonesia has played a very big role in getting people out of poverty. And, and you know, that's what you see, right? Indonesia is now, it is a middle-income country, no longer a low-income country. We've talked a little bit throughout this conversation about the divide between the haves and the have-nots, whether that's a digital divide or other types of divide, urban versus rural, etc. I wonder for both of you how you think governments and partnerships can play a role to close the gaps that exist. We can start with you, Rukmini. So I would say that you know, if I look at government schools and private schools in rural areas during the lockdown, because the government is a large network and is able to distribute resources within the networks, the schools were able to reach out to their students in many different ways, but were able to do something. There has been a trend in India over the last 10 years, 15 years of increasing private schooling, even in rural areas. But I think that move to the government school can be interpreted in many ways. One is if your family is economically doing worse, then you will lean back on government services. But I do think there is also a realization that large networks can provide more resources than you know individual institutions like private schools. I do think that our experience with these, what I call social structures and sharing, I would like to see is to have device libraries. So if your village has, you know, 10 tablets or whatever, because a smartphone is a very personal thing. Even dad doesn't really like you messing around in his phone, right? And it's almost like your own identity. You have your own stuff in it and it's very private. A device library would enable many people to use the same device in some kind of a fashion. I think the idea, one is the government increasing whatever it takes, the infrastructure for better connectivity. But the second is investment in social infrastructure and sharing to be able to equalize, you know, these opportunities across, I think would be very useful. I love that idea of shared devices and device libraries. Abay, what about you? What do you think the role could be in Indonesia for governments and partnerships to improve the digital divide, close that gap? I think in Indonesia, the issue is slightly different, right? Because a lot of families that we see, even in the lower socioeconomic segments, they have access to a smartphone. The issue here, and I I think where the government can play a role, is indeed partnering more with telcos and providers and providing access to better connectivity just because it does solve a very real problem for many students in this country. So our thought is being able to subsidize some of this investment. And currently the government does spend a lot of money, right? 20% of the government's spend is on education. So education would be one of the problems solved by better connectivity. But what we've seen also in the past is that the government has been willing to spend when it comes to connectivity, right? So during COVID, in fact, the Indonesian government was one of the few governments which allowed subsidies to students if you were accessing online schooling through Zoom or through Google Meet. For that purpose, they would subsidize. So that ways has been very forward-looking when it comes to specifically the issue of connectivity. And we think that they should just continue to subsidize that. So a lot of the technology that is, say, being developed in the West I think the assumption is nuclear family, not a lot of people around, 
Whereas in Indonesia or in India, you have billions of people around and somehow the technological, whatever infrastructure that we are thinking about is not connecting to the fact any spot in India or Indonesia, bringing 20 people together is very easy. And if something happening on your phone, there is going to be a crowd. I mean, I don't know if this happens in Indonesia, you're on a bus or a train and you're looking at something on your phone. Five people around you are looking in your phone as well, saying, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" You know, kind of thing. Right? <laughs> now, Indonesia that way is a bit different from India. So, to me, I'm obviously Indian. I grew up in Indonesia, but when I come to India, sometimes it is a bit of a culture shock, right? Everyone's in your business, like all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have, uh, you know, good friend from Holland, right? And when when he would visit, you know, he'd say like, "Hey, there is no concept of a personal bubble, right?" So, why should my screen be my personal bubble? Games that are made for kids, at least the games that you see commonly in India, are all individual players. It would be so easy to have five kids play together. So I just feel like somehow technological developments are not taking into account that there are some very crowded places in the world where that crowds could be resources, but where it's landing is very different in different places. And there isn't like a one size suits all. I just feel like it is because the market is where the top 20% to 30% is. The developments are skewed in that direction. <laughs> to me, Dr. Rukmini, I, I think that's what connectivity solves. And you know, this is where the point about subsidizing, right? You know, in fact, if you look at Geo, right? And what Geo did for India and connectivity, right? I think that's a private sector player. I think in countries like Indonesia, We've not really had that yet. No player has taken that aggressive of an approach to connectivity. And so that's where, you know, perhaps for countries like Indonesia, when it comes to access for not just the top 20%, but the remaining population and what the internet can do for them, that's where we just feel that the government needs to step up in partnership with some of these private players. But even there, I mean, I'm not taking anything away from the connectivity increases and things like this here. Even to operate your bank account, you need a device on which your OTP is going to come. It requires a personal phone or of a very close family and who are always there and so on. I think what Geo has done in India has really opened up the entertainment industry in ways that was unimaginable. I mean, everybody's watching movies across the country, streaming music. I don't feel that has happened in education at all. Connectivity is for everything, payment systems, agricultural information, but I think the reason it hasn't happened in education is because of a very exclusive focus on curriculum and exams. Whereas entertainment can be anything. You know, the amount of Indians who are watching Korean movies. There are kids in school who can speak Korean now. That's because it was outside the curriculum. So you could go out there and watch Korean movies. And I don't know what is in our mental image these days about Korea, but it's like some pop star going to the army is creating waves here because <laughs> that's globalization. That's where you're like going out there and looking at what there is and blah, blah, blah. I think we're going to see a big shift with more and more Indians coming online with 4G, 5G increasingly over time and the aggressiveness with which the telecommunications operators in your market are rolling out and how fast the uptake is anticipated to be by the population. So I think you're not wrong in the observation regarding the skew that you described where we've seen more advancements to date, at least historically. 
there is a high degree of standardisation in terms of technology development to ensure interoperability and security in these aspects. But just providing the connectivity into the hands of more and more people, I think, will unlock things that we've not thought of before. And there will be a big cultural influence because context matters. When you give the technology to somebody in India versus somebody in Indonesia or Australia, they're going to interact with it and perceive it and have ideas about it in completely different ways. But OTP or one-time password that you mentioned being locked to individual devices is a current implementation of how mobile commerce is done. But I guess what you're suggesting is it needs to maybe be flipped on its head or thought about differently because in your context in India, it might not be sort of fit for purpose. And also, even though there may be one or two smartphones in the family, systematically we see that women have access. access. Mm. Children may have access for certain assignments and assessments and things like that, which the family considers important. But using your dad's device to see when will the next comet arrive, well, that's not allowed. I mean, you know. It's a waste of time. <laughs> it's a really good point. It's another aspect, I suppose, of the divide with that gender lens to it. I want to move to maybe looking forward, a statement about the outlook and how you each see the future of education. We'll start with you, Rukmini. I think that um, I see that there is a very early stage which needs to be very broad-based and very integrated between home and family for building these, say, age three to age seven, eight building block. And I feel like it's the mothers who will broaden what the foundation should be and not leave it only with literacy and numeracy. So that's one big task to be done. Then I think there's a stage in school where it doesn't matter what else you're exposed to, being able to read or watch and engage and critique and argue, which kids at that age do very well, should be encouraged so that you are engaging with whatever is the content in whatever form. The space that I am still unable to visualize completely is what happens after 10. 10 to 16, 17, 18, I think is very uncharted territory. And because we haven't charted it, we're just leaning on the educational sort of architecture that had been built. I mean, I was in a village a couple of days ago and I was talking to kids who are in 9th and 10th grade. Their vision of the future educationally, not outside education, was not different from when I was that age 50 years ago. That is really worrying. I need to go to my tutor. I need to practice more. I need to get more marks. Do you like physics or chemistry? It doesn't matter. I do physics because I get more marks. All of this stuff is supremely worrying to me because at this age, you want to say, I don't want to do this shit. Okay? I want to actually know how to build a drone. I want to know how to forge my mother's signature. <laughs> and that's the mindset question. How do you see what the world will be like for you when you're 25? Today, you are 14. And we don't do this enough. We seem to have a sense that the world is changing, but my pathway into that world is going to remain exactly like how my uncle did it. I was in Washington, mm. D.C. some months ago, and I thought, well, maybe I'm the one who, you know, I'm a dinosaur and I'm in the dark ages and so I'm not seeing the world as it is. So I asked a lot of people in this sort of global education thinking world, so what's the view? And the view was better connectivity, better access to better lessons, and hopefully this will all lead to an employability which would be better. But what about the job market? That's not changing in that way. 
and i don't think the education sector has an answer and we are being lazy we need to kick ourselves further to say you know unpack this learning imagine that world it's okay if the imagination is wrong it's okay if the pathways that we are plotting are completely non linear what are we waiting for it's probably an example of the curse of knowledge as we age we know more things and maybe our propensity to conform or not challenge intensifies in a way where innocence and naivety when we're younger doesn't inhibit our ability to kind of think big and and laterally and creatively and that things might be different so yeah interesting i wonder then from your perspective abe how's the future looking from your vantage point Well a few things it'll be exactly the same as it was in the past. There is teachers in your life that you probably remember for good reasons and for bad reasons and the ones that you remember for good reasons are probably the ones that believed in you and encouraged you and made difficult things easy to understand. I think for the world as well, right? We look at Socrates or Confucius and these are some of the people that just made so much of a difference in the lives of so many and i think that will continue to happen there will always be teachers on one side of the normal curve right who are outliers and they just have a disproportionate impact i think you know in the future the goal should be how do you get these people who really care for the students that they teach how can they have an audience to these students right and i think in the future what education looks like even in the formal sector with schools there will be shared spaces you know like great infrastructure great basketball courts great swimming pools great tennis courts great auditoriums all shared by schools and kids will want that experience to meet with their friends and teachers but a lot more of their day and their week will be structured online being able to do so in a way where it's not just the teacher giving you assignments over WhatsApp and then you're doing it at home and then giving them back to the teacher but really in a way which doesn't feel any different from the offline experience for them i think that will be the future sounds like a lot to navigate but hopefully a lot to look forward to as well so on that note dr rukmini banerji ceo of pratham and abay sabu co-founder of colon thank you so much for joining techsetera thank you Thank you Sarah. You've been listening to Tech Cetera, a podcast about the intersection of technology, culture, etc. This podcast was produced by Ericsson. For over 140 years and counting, Ericsson has been innovating to deliver the best of mobile connectivity and broadband to billions of people around the world. driving positive change in every sector of society. To find out more, head to our website at ericsson.com. To guarantee you don't miss an episode of Techsetera, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Sarah Goss and I'll be back next episode with more Techsetera.